Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer, current Greenberg Trarig media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Paul, this is... This is interesting because you were at the Super Bowl this past Sunday. You were in Phoenix during the Super Bowl. I was in Phoenix. I was there for Super Bowl week. It ended up being a lot busier than I expected. So I was only able to make it to one true Super Bowl party on Saturday night, which, you know, shout out to a very good friend. I don't know if he wants me to drop his name, but it was the Maximum Super Bowl party and it was a great event in Scottsdale. It was at a jet hangar. They had amazing DJs and complimentary drinks and food. It was just an awesome time and gave me a, a true sense of, apparently that whole week, Super Bowl week is just the most you know insane party for whatever city. All week? It's the whole week, yeah. I mean, because like basically they typically happen in warm weather cities it's the second week of February, so it's a good place to sort of get out if you're from the Northeast or somewhere that's cold. The teams are there for a week. There's all this media availability, and it's grown into this huge thing. And I think, you know, when it's in Miami or next year it's in Vegas, this year it's in Phoenix, it's just like all the clubs, the hotels, and just people flock to the city to, for the week leading up to the game to just, you know, party, network, celebrate football. And so there were events every night of the week. I was ended up being really busy with work, so I couldn't get to anything until Saturday. And then the game ended up being a crushing disappointment for me as an Eagles fan. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, it's not a sports podcast, but it was just, I remember such a range of emotions, feeling like the Eagles are going to win. You go into halftime with a lead. Patrick Mahomes' ankle might have been tweaked. He was grimacing wincing whatever on the sideline and I felt really good about it and then the second half starts and the Kansas City Chiefs were just unstoppable they didn't punt they didn't have any turnovers they didn't have any negative plays they just kind of scored at will and they won a close game I mean eventually it did come down to I think a call yeah the whole was call. questionable but it it's not as if the Eagles were guaranteed to win absent that call. So, I mean, it's hard to blame it entirely on the refs or anything. It was just a great game for non-Eagles fans, but crushing defeat for those of us who bleed green. Well, sorry for your loss. It was a good game for the most part. The ending was a bit like, it just, it, it did feel a little down or a little anticlimactic. Most people I knew were Eagles fans going into it. But overall, I mean, I thought good Super Bowl, competitive you know, from the entertainment landscape, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the biggest ad expenditures of the year, Super Bowl ads and obviously the halftime. And shout out to Rihanna. Dude. Rihanna I liked was it. great. I thought it was great. I feel like, I mean, we were all watching like, is she pregnant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. she is. Yeah. Uh, good news uh, on that front. But I mean, she had a great performance, but there were also a lot of songs that she didn't do that I was kind of hoping that she yeah. was going to do. But that's just because you can't fit them all in. She was she was great. We forget how many songs she has in her catalog. Like amazing that you have one. It's a great reason to increase the value of your song catalog. So for Rihanna, 
in front of like tens and tens of millions of people gets to do all her great tracks again. I actually forgot how many bangers she had. I know. And I thought it was great. A little and a little plug of her makeup line. I thought that was pretty cool. Like she, you know, she's walking a little subtle, very seamless and well done. <laughs> yeah, because she, you know, she doesn't get paid to do the Super Bowl spot. It's basically she, she, she gets all her production costs and like I think she gets SAG scale and the the dancers get right, right, right. minimum union right. compensation. Um, so she doesn't have to come out of pocket. Whereas in the past, I think performers did right. Well, this was a ten, come out of pocket a little yeah, bit. This was like a $10 million production that I'm assuming that Apple, if Apple, if it is brought to you by Apple music, I'm assuming that Apple pays for it or something like maybe a mix of folks pay for it. Dolby included and a few other folks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure as between the NFL and, and Rihanna, I assume the NFL is like, Hey, we'll cover all the expenses. We do want to take a look at the budget and, and make sure there's nothing out of whack. Tell us what you need and we're, we'll cover it. And then separately, someone is probably trying to get a sponsor to right, cover right. that amount, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. No, I, look, I thought it was great. I thought it was great. Super, like, given all the Super Bowl performances, I think it goes in the top 10. Like, you'd have to look back and see the performance. But it was a good Super Bowl performance. I think we could go back and say... It was. That was entertaining. I thought, you know, this was the year that crypto ads were banned from advertising on the... Uh, on well, they just maybe the they just couldn't afford... Yeah. Well, that's true too. That's true too. But given that, um, you know, what's been happening, but I, I, I genuinely thought the ads are decent. I enjoyed them. Oh yeah. I thought they're, they're pretty good. So you want to give me your top three ads? Yeah. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I was looking at the list earlier, but as an exercise to see what actually stood out to me, um, I thought the, obviously the pop corners ad with, uh, yep. The Definitely. Breaking Bad throwback was great. You know, the Will Ferrell ad was funny. That I, I thought it was more like, oh, cool. The like Netflix GM. Yeah, like I just actually liked all the EV vehicles coming out. Like I, I think there was a few of them. I was pretty impressed. Was Premature like, electrification. He, he, that was actually phenomenal. I thought that was phenomenal. Yeah, that was funny. That was really well done. I was surprised it was a little racy for like, you know, some of the households, I'm assuming. But who knows? I, I thought it was great. I'm trying to remember... Like I, I thought all the celebrity ads were some of them were just like kind of forced celebrity ads. And then some some were decent, like the Pepsi Zero. I thought the Uber one thing was interesting because it was like multiple big hit songs from different generations being used in the ad. You know, in, in previous episodes, we've talked about like syncing. Yeah. And I don't you know, those are like that was probably a pretty expensive ad to make, given not only you had Diddy and all these other cameos, but you're using, you know, these other songs within it versus just one song which I thought was actually kind of cool. But if you looked at it from that perspective, a lot of the ads kind of wouldn't have really stood out without the music. Right, right. But yeah, other than that, uh, I was entertained. I thought the trailers this year, look, I mean, there was basically, what, three big trailers, two of which were, uh, one was DC, one was Marvel, and then one was, of course, Fast and the Furious. I, I don't remember any other trailers besides those And three. Creed 3. Ah, uh, yeah, Creed 3. But I feel like Creed, we've seen enough Creed 3. Like, I, I've been seeing Creed 3, Trailers, so like I think when I saw that I wasn't paying attention. Well, it's much. coming out in a, you know in less than a month. What about um the air? I th I thought that that looks really cool. Matt Damon. Ah, uh, so I think I I think I I like left the room or something because I missed that. I actually randomly watched that on YouTube earlier, and I think that's going to be that's like a movie that people are going to be excited about going back to the theater for. Yeah. So you like the Flash? The Flash, Air, Creed Three. Obviously, Fast Furious, and then um, 
actually the first spot during the game was for 65, which I don't know if it's going to make any sense. You know, the when humanity encounters the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. Oh, this is the Adam Driver movie. Yeah. I've been hearing about this movie. I'm very intrigued by it. Anything dinosaurs and Adam Driver, I mean, I'm in. Oh, and there's a new Transformers, right? So, yeah, there's a lot coming out. Was there a trailer for a Transformers movie? Yeah. Oh, I missed that as well. Dang, I should go back and uh, I should I should look that up. I actually watched the Flash one a couple times because obviously big Michael Keaton Batman fan here. My favorite Batman. I got a little like goosebumps when the, the Batman old music came in the trailer. But James Gunn, now granted, he's probably biased because he's, you know, co-heading DCU right now in the studio and all their production. But he says that it's his favorite superhero movie ever made. Um, and the trailer gave a vibe of this is either going to be extremely, extremely well done and it's going to be epic and blow a lot of people away and introduces new characters like Supergirl or it falls flat by trying to do too much in one movie, which DC has been known to do. We will find out come June 16th. Oh, and the the last thing I'd say is on the ads, NFL always the smartest people in the room. They had plenty of YouTube ads to talk about their new right. Sunday ticket partner on YouTube right. TV and YouTube. So, you know, they even had an exclusive pregame show, like the, the pre-kick show, because the, the pregame is like four hours long now or maybe longer. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah it's, long. it's just such such a brilliant marketing machine. But yeah, overall, I'd say solid. I was entertained by the game, I was entertained by the ads, I was entertained by the trailers, entertained by the halftime show. So I would say overall, good Good Super Bowl. Yeah. Besides the ending. Besides the ending, yeah. Can't have it all. No, can't have it all. Well, Paul, let's take a break, and then let's get back, and we're going to talk about the media landscape, get back to business, and talk about what's going on with all these companies right now and layoffs, et cetera. So, Mesh, uh... Last week, another tough week in the media slash tech world in terms of, and we discussed this actually in episode 42 at the end of last year, there was a wide array of media-focused layoffs, sort of Meta, Amazon, I think even Google announced, and companies that historically really never laid people off were starting to do so. And the question is, what was causing it? And then is this a sign of something broader, right? Or is tech the canary in the coal mine of a much deeper recession that's coming? I think there's a lot of people that are, are wondering, hey, are we in a recession? Is one imminent given the rise in interest rates and economic slowdown, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine? Or is the economy strong? And I think we're kind of getting mixed signals, right? On one hand, the U.S. economy added half a million jobs in January, People on the lower end of the earnings spectrum are doing really well. There's a lot of demand for those types of jobs. Unemployment is very low overall, system-wide. But in an area of sort of high-paying, high-growth industries, tech and media, there have been a lot of layoffs. There have been contraction. Uh, Yahoo's laying off 20% of its workforce. Disney announced 7,000 layoffs in addition to other cost-saving measures, which we can get into in in a little bit. We'll do a little bit of a deeper dive on Disney. News Corp announced 1,250 layoffs. So, I mean, it, it is concerning, but then you think about it in the context that from the beginning of the pandemic through the end of it, a lot of these tech-focused companies 
grew really quickly. Yeah. Meta being a good example, grew 60% between 2019 and 2021. Zoom, which was a company a lot of people hadn't heard of before the pandemic, then it becomes something that everyone's sitting on seven hours a day, right? You're on Zoom. So of course they ramped up, they grew a lot. And it's understandable for them to do layoffs now if they sort of staffed up expecting the growth that was happening in 2020 to continue. And obviously that wasn't going to happen. So it's hard to say whether or not this is a sign of something larger or merely just these businesses, which grew really quickly, sort of right-sizing as they as we try to find a new equilibrium. Yeah, and, I, and I, well, I mean, I think it's, as you said, even within tech and, and media, like we thought there was going to be a bunch of layoffs. People have the tendency to lay off like in, in these tranches almost. So I think it's probably more uh, folks who are well-experienced know that you got to cut jobs when you have to cut jobs and it's unfortunate. But I think a lot of tech companies did like, five, 10%, that they did another 10, 20%. And so in media, are we seeing the same thing? Are they doing these small cuts now? Or is that the big cut? Is that them actually doing, um, there's going to be no more layoffs after this? Obviously, all of them have to get their costs in control. So we'll see what happens here. I mean, I think generally, uh, at least when it came down, we can get more into detail about Disney, but I think Wall Street is happy that Iger is back. And I think they trust him to, organize the company or restructure in a way that not only are they saving money where they were spending too much and, and cutting costs, um, but they're like kind of reining in some of the really, really big spending they're doing on streaming and figuring out pricing, et cetera. So this is just what needs to happen. So, and, and I think you're right. I think the commentary is that the worst was expected. This is not as bad. Obviously it sucks for people to lose their job, so, but you don't want this like massive contraction and i.e. fear of recession. Right. And I don't know that I don't know that we're out of the woods on that. Right. Uh, I mean, I still I still think the that people are concerned and there's valid concern that a contraction is on the horizon or there's at least a material risk of one only because the cost to borrow is so high and you wonder like all costs are sort of getting more and more expensive and how long are people going to be able to afford them because it, it can end up in a vicious cycle. I would say also that in television itself, there has been a lot of pressure on the business model. And you know we've seen a lot of evolution. I mean, me being a large part of what I do is cable television work and sports rights have gotten incredibly lucrative and expensive. And we're seeing Diamond Sports Group, it, there's rumors that it's expected to file for bankruptcy perhaps as soon as this week. And for those who don't know, this is all wrapped up in Disney, Fox, Rupert Murdoch. It's all sort of tied together because in 2019, Rupert Murdoch, who was the CEO of News Corp, you know, ran Fox. They sold Fox or a large part of Fox's portfolio to Disney. But there was a bidding war between Comcast and Disney, which increased the price from $50 billion, which is what Disney initially offered, to $70 billion, which is what Disney ended up having to pay. And part of that portfolio was regional sports networks, which were ultimately bought by Sinclair Broadcast Group and then sort of put into a special purpose entity, which is Diamond Sports Group. Diamond has not been bringing in the revenue that they thought they would because people are cutting the cord and people aren't paying for, you know, households aren't paying for expensive cable packages the way they were in sort of the mid-2010s. And so that contraction has led to a lot of pressure and you know, they kind of bought at the top of the market on a heavy debt-laden deal. And so it's they need to sort of restructure it. And I, I get that. 
But one of the things I'd point out, and we discussed this, I think it was episode 32, is that part of the reason Bob Iger is saying we need to cut all these costs is because of a deal that Bob right, Iger did right, in 2019, right, 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 right. which was to buy Fox yep. at a very high number. And, you know, people, granted, I mean, listen, you're not going to be right all the time. Marvel, Pixar, Lucasfilm, they all look like great deals. But you wonder if the Fox acquisition made sense, especially in light of the fact that they took on a lot of debt. You know, they have almost $50 billion in debt now. And if they don't keep Hulu, you wonder, you know, what did they get out of it? Well, I do also wonder, like, is this like everything else that's happened, that happened in the markets, that happened in tech, where it's not necessarily just like companies are overblown from like a valuations perspective, but the, the actual assets are overblown. Um, like, have people been paying way too much to acquire these rights? And like, is that going to, you know, is it the is it going to be a good return for them in the future? And we talk about everything from sports rights to song catalogs to studios to like, you know, IP, et cetera. Right now it's a race for content. So have we inflated the value of all of this because of this desire for all these companies based on the business model they have to acquire this content? And will that correct at some point? Like, you know, and just random examples, I'm just putting ideas out there. Like someone acquired a song catalog of X artist, just using that as an example, you know, are they buying at the height of it, even though they're saying, well, no, actually in 10 years, it's going to be worth more, or are they paying so much advance on that, that the price is just overly inflated and they won't make their money back once we start seeing contraction from like a consumer standpoint and spending, et cetera. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say definitively. That's why people make the big bucks, right? Like you you do investments because you think they're going to go up in value, but there's a lot of other factors that you're sort of evaluating, but you don't have 100% clarity or predictability into how they're going to work out. Like, you know, things like the cost to borrow something, right? Something could be a great deal if it generates X amount of revenue, but if your debt service goes up two or three X because interest rates are higher and you have, you know, floating rates, that could take a good deal and make it a bad deal. You could project a certain amount of demand. If the demand shrivels up, then that may make it a bad deal. And I know one thing that's sort of impacting a lot of the industry is that the ad revenue is not what it used to be. It wasn't, it isn't what it was right. sort of at the peak of the market because not only are CPMs down, but like inventory spends, budgets are getting slashed because companies just have to be a little bit more sort of careful about what they're spending their ads on. And so we can talk about it. I'd say a couple things about this, though. One is, like you said, in an environment where a company A does layoffs, that does make it easier from a PR perspective for company B or C or D to also then jump on the train and do some layoffs. Because historically, you know, it's it's impossible to perfectly predict what your labor needs are going to be, but there's always this sort of stigma for you do layoffs because people think, well, the company might be struggling. So it's sort of like there's strength in numbers or there's safety in numbers. So if a bunch of companies are doing layoffs, a couple percent here or there, five or 10% of their workforce, it's not viewed as something that they did wrong. It's just they're sort of yeah. keeping up with the industry. And, and so they're not singled out for doing that. But I would say that the, the spend for consumer spending on content, especially streaming content overall, is still growing. It grew, I think, at like mid 30% in year-ending 2020, I think it grew 20% year-ending 2021 or starting 2021, and it grew 17% last year. So it's a market where people are continuing to spend money, but because it's so competitive that the Disney's and the Netflix's of the world and the Discoveries and, and Paramount's and whoever, 
they can't just greenlight every show, right? Like they have to be a little bit more careful about the shows that they want to keep producing and the shows that they want to invest in because, you know, if if you're not profitable for multiple years, then the business isn't yeah. going to have a future. I wonder also, is that because, you know, a lot of times, depending on what it is, but like on Apple TV or Amazon Prime or anything that you have, it's, it's a little bit, it, it can become a bit frictionless. Like your credit card's on file. It's easy for you to just like, subscribe and and then you forget about it. I know there's some things like I forget whether I have an account or not. And until it's really like, hey, my consumer spending needs to come down and I'm actively looking to like cutting those costs down. But right now it's been so easy for me to subscribe to these things. I wonder if there is like a period of time where it's almost lagging to some degree. Like people are like, oh, until I know I really need to cut costs in my home, I'm going to start doing that. But right now it's like, yeah, it's working, right? Like at some point, someone's going to be like, well, this is not really working for me. I don't really see the value in me having this platform. Um, so I'm going to get rid of it and just consolidate. I don't know. It hasn't happened on a grander scale yet, but I, I'm, I'm assuming it would. It is. I mean, it's something that these streaming services are very concerned about, right? And what you're talking about is churn. Yeah. So if you have a product and it's very easy for you to cancel because you just log in and click cancel, and stop paying for it, then inherently your subscriber numbers are going to fluctuate unless you constantly have good content coming out. Because if someone, for example, let's just say someone only wanted to watch Netflix for Squid Game and then they canceled once, they're they're not going to rejoin until Squid Game 2 comes out or whatever. So for people that join things just for you know a particular season, if it's you know a sports product or for a particular show, then that can create a lot of churn. And there's a couple strategies that studio and streaming executives use to reduce that. One is to always have new appealing content in your slate be released. Another is to release things instead of a binge format, like yep. a weekly, weekly format, like This Is Us, right? Yep. Or Game of Thrones, House of Dragon, right? That was, they drop one episode a week. Netflix kind of changed the game when they drop this entire season at the same time so people could watch it when they wanted to watch it and binge the whole thing. But if you take something like The Last of Us and release it over nine or 10 weeks, then you're going to keep people subscribed yes. for that period of time if that's the only show they care about. And then they release another show, like as soon as Last of Us is done, you get Succession season four and then so on and so on, ideally. Right, so you either have like, you know, your content comes out in a organized but sequential manner to prevent churn. And the other thing is a lot of bundling, right? So for example, let's say you have T-Mobile and they pay for your Netflix for a year or for your Disney Plus or whatever. Or let's say you just bought an iPhone uh, or you just upgraded to the newest iPhone and that gives you Apple TV Plus. Or you you could bundle a couple things. And so you know, the more you bundle products, the more confusing it gets to the consumer, but they're also probably paying less at the end of the day than if they were to buy everything separately. And the the, the likelihood of churn is also reduced if you're bundling things. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. It gets complicated, I'm sure. Another strategy, since we're talking about this, is to just go solely ad-supported, right? So fast channels, uh, which fast stands for free ad-supported streaming television, um, those channels are basically free to the user. You you may have to create a login to access it. Uh, and they're on platforms like Roku, Tubi, Pluto, and many others. And you can log in and watch your shows. 
You don't have to pay anything, but there are a lot of ads. And so the ads get monetized and there's some sort of rev share between the platform and the licensor of the content. So Discovery even announced that Discovery and and Warner, they're going to release 14 fast channels on uh, Tubi. And some of that's going to be content that was pulled off of HBO Max, like Westworld and Raised by Wolves. Other stuff is going to be sort of reality unscripted content from Discovery. So fast is an area that's also going to be growing because of people, like to your point, if you want to cut your cut the cord or cut your subscription, but still want to watch content, then yeah. rather than pay for it, you can just be the ad, yep. right, essentially. Let's take a break and then let's wrap up with talking about what their plans are, Disney included. All right, Paul. So, you know, one of the companies we keep mentioning, we, we talked about Disney. We specifically talked about Bob Iger taking over Disney. They had earnings recently, you know, so we can just quickly dive into Disney, Peacock and some of the other companies and what they're doing around layoffs and their plans, at least with Disney, you know, Disney, like of 7,000 people, Iger is saying that getting costs and control, like we discussed, but also now putting it, the company restructuring and putting it into three divisions, Disney Entertainment, Parks Experience and Products, and then ESPN separately manage, get control over subscription costs, figure out pricing. And then, of course, being open to selling Hulu versus buying it from Comcast. Well, not buying it from Comcast. So just to be clear, and we discussed this, I believe it was episode 32. So they have a deal where they have, Comcast has the right to force Disney to purchase yes, its 33% yes. share, but Disney already controls 70%. So like they could either buy it out 100% or- So it's, that's what I mean, buying the remaining share. Oh, buying Comcast share. Yeah, yeah, buying the remaining shares, which would, you know, I don't think they could do at this point. They got to keep costs in control or are they going to sell it? You know, and I think Bob Iger just said he's open to selling it. Um, I think he's just- I don't know whether he's doing saying that just to keep Wall Street like, oh, that's interesting. Because um, they also talked about like, would he sell a minority stake in ESPN, which could be valued like super high, 10 to 15% of that. But I think it's just interesting because I think they're coming in and a lot of what Iger's doing is just cleaning up, restructuring. And if it works out, he'll get the credit for it, which is interesting too, given that, you know, he left right before all that happened. Yeah. I mean, listen, I I've said in the past, maybe not on this show, but probably, you know, I didn't think it made sense to have Disney Plus and Hulu under the same portfolio because I think there's just too much overlap. And as Disney Plus gets more, you know, edgy content and more into the general entertainment genre, then it's like, how do you differentiate it from Hulu? Why would you be investing in things that are the same? And so, well, quick question for you: Wouldn't that mean like if you're negotiating like new shows or movies on Hulu, like part of the catalog, and on Disney Plus? I mean, there's a team sitting there being like, which one should this go to? Right? Like, shouldn't you just be ideally you should just be negotiating it for one platform? Right. I mean, listen. Well, there are synergies, right? Like you can have content that maybe you don't think fits on Disney Plus, and you can put it on Hulu, and Hulu gets a lot of its content from Disney. Uh, overall, and Hulu also has a live TV product. But I'm just saying more broadly, how many people are going to be buying three or four streaming services from from Disney? If they are differentiated, then I can understand you'd have 
a sports-focused one, a general entertainment-focused one, maybe a children-focused one or something, and you do want to bundle them. But I just don't know long-term if Hulu is that different than Disney Plus to justify having two different products. And I mean, Hulu is an attractive business. I mean, they have 46 million subscribers as of today. They only had 29 million when Disney sort of bought Fox and got another 33%. But does it just make sense to have two? And, you know, Fox has, or sorry, Comcast has the right to to get 9 billion for its 33% stake. And, And as you said, maybe that's too much, right? Maybe that would require Disney to take on more debt. So where does it fit in the picture? And similarly, I think with Warner, when the Warner Discovery deal closed, Dave Zaslov said, okay, well, what we're going to do, you know, this is still sort of a work in progress, but what we're going to do, we think, is combine HBO Max and Discovery into something that, like, everyone will need to have, right? Because we want to be a competitor with Netflix and with, you know, Disney and the Disney bundle. And now they've announced that, well, actually, no, Discovery Plus is still going to remain a standalone offering. If you want to buy it on its own, you can, you know, at the $6.99 price point. But what we might do is create something that's like, you know, the best of HBO Max, the best of Discovery Plus, and call that something else and have a different price for it. So then they would have potentially HBO Max on its own, Discovery Plus on its own, and then this third other thing, which I don't know if that makes sense either because, you know, I don't know if it made sense to combine them, and I don't know if it made right. sense to quasi combine them. I think you know if they've served different audiences and they're at way different price points, maybe you just let them exist separately. And if someone really wants both, you can give them a, a bundled discount, like a couple bucks off if you buy Discovery Plus and you already have HBO Max. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious to see what happens with that. I mean, I guess we'll know sooner than later because I think their plans are, you know, it's coming up to merge those platforms together and and just see how it goes from a consumer standpoint. I'm curious more from a user standpoint how that would work, you know, given that I'm a big HBO fan, platform's okay. Now when you start mixing things into it, is it going to confuse me as a user or I'm going to just prefer it? And there's really no overlap between their offerings. Right. right. And I think that's what makes it interesting, yeah. you know, because they are so distinct. Uh, and similarly, we talked about Comcast as potentially being able to require Disney to buy out its Hulu ownership, but Comcast may be a buyer for Hulu because they have Peacock already, and Peacock has not blown the doors off. It's been around for three years. It has 20 million some subscribers. It's been given away essentially at no cost to Comcast broadband subscribers. That may be ending, but they're starting to get some traction with Poker Face, and you know they have streaming access yeah, to TAR, yeah. And uh, they have NBC and Bravo shows sort of on the next day air. So they have the beginnings of a platform that could be viable. And so they may want to bundle that with Hulu or or see where it goes. But the past three years have not been a runaway success for Peacock. So it remains to be seen what what Comcast is going to do with it. But it seems to be turning the corner, at least. Yeah, curious to see. Uh, I was just telling someone the other day, like when I think of Peacock, I think NBC. Right. And I think like the Peacock news streaming shows are not like what we would probably be used to watching on network TV, which for me personally, like I don't watch anything on like network TV anymore. I was like, as long as it's, it has to be Netflix, it has to be HBO, it has to be one of those, you know, where I know I'm getting 
uh, not overly censored content. And I think Peacock, as they have more success with shows, will start showing that as well. Because Poker Face Show is supposed to be really good, by the way. Yeah. I keep hearing about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jess did a show for Peacock uh, 2021, I think, uh, cooking show. And, you know, listen, there's there's so much content. It's almost too much. Yeah. There's going to continue to be shifts in strategy as the market evolves and people are like, well, this is costing way more than we thought it would or the market isn't really receptive to this. Showtime is now part of Paramount Plus. So like things are always kind of evolving, which is what makes it interesting and hard to kind of stay on top of from a fan perspective. But I would say overall that I don't think the bottom is falling out. I think it's just evolving. Yeah, I, and I like that. I mean, I look, for us as consumers, it's just all gravy, you know, we'll benefit from it either in more and more stuff or some level of bundling and cost cutting that makes it more beneficial for us to to subscribe to. I mean, I can't keep paying for all these services. I got to figure it out. I, <laughs> I know someone did a, someone show, showed, um, it was like a meme or something of like what cable used to cost. And then it just right next to it had all the streaming services and it's more expensive than paying for cable now. So oh, yeah, um, no, the pendulum's probably going to swing back and cable's going to come back yeah, to, yeah. you know, being, I mean, look, I, I do miss just the, the, the opening the guide, seeing what's around. Uh, I, this is what I really liked about the Comcast box. Um, my mom had it in DC. It's like you're, you're the Xfinity box. You're like, you can watch live TV and then you can just go on demand to everything that they have. And I thought that just worked really, really well. Yeah. And so I like that balance of the two because sometimes you don't know what you want to watch, man. No, it should all be integrated, but there's different technology, different sort of user interfaces, different app stores. It's, it's, it's a, it's a jumble. It's a lot. Well, look, let's, uh, let's close out on that note. And, um, We'll keep an eye on things. And uh, after a, a, a tough Super Bowl for you, thanks for coming on board and, and, and talking all this out. But uh, we'll see everyone next week and stay tuned. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Better Call Paul the Podcast on Instagram. Me on Twitter at Meshlakani. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Talk soon. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>